Whilst in isolation, as we all pretty much are at the moment, I was trying to think of how many genre shows there have been that have postulated post-apocalyptic futures for mankind. And I came up with quite a few. Most always follow on from some terrible disaster that befell mankind, like in Day of the Triffids, where it was the funny meteorites that turned everybody blind, and alien invasion, like Falling Skies, or War of the Worlds, or the rise of the deceased, like The Walking Dead. The one that most mirrors our current situation, though, and the one that was foremost in my mind when I started pondering this, when I should have been working, was Survivors. Created and written by Dalek and Blake 7 overlord Terry Nation, Survivors shows the most similarities with events as they currently stand, albeit on a far more lethal scale. Survivors debuted on BBC One in April of 1975, with its first episode, the aptly titled The Last Horseman. The opening credits are incredibly, almost scurrily prescient. A Chinese scientist drops a file of something onto the floor of his lab before we next see him looking feverish and wandering through an airport. A body falls to the floor. Further meetings take place as we see a passport stamped in Moscow, Paris, Berlin, New York and finally London. It's a portentous but simple title sequence and it gets the point across without the need of a voiceover or captions. We then open in suburbia. Abby Grant, played by Carolyn Seymour, is the oh-so-upper-class housewife playing tennis with a newly installed machine that allows her to practice her backhand without the need for the tedium of having another human involved. We know she's upper-class, as she has a housekeeper who she treats as an underling. I mean, she pretends to be friends with the riffraff, but there's never any doubt who the power in the relationship is. Carolyn Seymour's plummy RP accent is perfect for the role and indicative of the BBC's no-accents-allowed approach to television at the time. If Seymour's name sounds familiar, it may be due to her having had a hugely successful career on both sides of the Atlantic. She was the lead in the very popular bed sitcom Take Three Girls in 1971 and did the ITC Roadshow, appearing in Space 1999 and Return of the Saint, before heading over to America where she toured the 80s action circuit, appearing in The Greatest American Hero, Magnum P.I., Cagney and Lacey, Remington Steel, Twilight Zone and many others. In genre circles, she's best known for being Amanda Pay's mum in The Flash, making three different appearances in Star Trek The Next Generation, including the alien in First Contact and a Romulan in Face of the Enemy, and being the evil Leaper's holographic sidekick Zoe in Quantum Leap. 
More recently, she's lent her dulcet tones to many a video game, including Gears of War and Mass Effect. Abby takes a call from her son, Peter, who is in isolation at his private school. Peter tells his mother that the school is on lockdown due to some recent event, which is never really specified on the show. In a mirror to current events, delivery men have took to leaving school supplies at the bottom of the driveway, and the students and staff go outside to pick them up, thus reducing human contact. Some of this is already a little bit too close for comfort. Initial thoughts are that this is merely some kind of stomach bug, but there are news reports of illness and death from all over the world. Some basic essentials are already struggling, with telephone lines being out and power cuts becoming commonplace. Abby, reluctantly, lets her housekeeper go home to see her own family, and then she heads out to the train station to pick up her husband. Trains are running to no particular timetable, and many have been cancelled. We see scenes in busy hospitals as overworked doctors try to keep up with the workload and pressure. Traffic jams are on the increase as people try to get home to their families, rather than being quarantined wherever they may be. And this is all just in London. It's not much better in the rest of the world, with Paris and New York both reporting a massive increase in cases as, what the World Health Organization assumed to be a virus, spreads throughout the world. I am only eight minutes into this episode when the accuracy of all this hits. Sure, science fiction has always been about looking at what could happen, but the idea that a virus could spring from nowhere and threaten to wipe out 95% of the population seemed incredible. Nation's research, or his imagination, is spot on. There are people denying that it's much of a problem at all, other people worrying about their families, and still others more concerned with how much of an inconvenience this all is to their daily lives. The medical services are struggling to keep up as the virus spreads, and there are long queues for supplies and medical attention. The health services are even offering up placebos to the populace. They know this isn't the flu, but the symptoms are flu-like, so they've taken to offering flu jabs just to make people feel better. Again, the fictional account of this is remarkable when we look at what is occurring in the world today. What news reports there are centre on the rising death toll, and we learn that the Chinese government have clamped down and releasing no news at all. All of this is very well played, with Abby showing less concern than most. These deaths are half a world away, and nothing to do with her, right? Abby's husband, David, is played by Peter Bowles, and he finally arrives home, more aggrieved by how long his journey took and that all this blasted inconvenience has interfered with his business interests. His exasperation that he had to take a bus is hysterical. Poor little rich boy, having to slum it with the serfs. Whatever next? Abby and David chat on the way home, with Abby pointing out how fragile society really is. Humanity is nothing but a pampered baby who screams when things grind to a halt. And she marvels at how everything we take for granted, light, heat, food, can be taken away from us so suddenly and abruptly. This scene is so frightfully upper class, darling. Abby is inconvenienced terribly by having to make tea for David at all due to letting her housekeeper leave. And his obvious disdain at the mere suggestion that he makes some food for himself is unintentionally hilarious. That's what the little lady's for. Go make me a sandwich, woman. 
overall, though, the breakdown of society is handled in a matter-of-fact way. We see the developments pretty much through the eyes of Abbey, pretty much how we are seeing what's happening now. Sure, Terry Nation didn't foresee rolling news and the constant barrage of information, but that makes survivors scurrier. These people really are cut off. Nation said he was interested in tackling the series after realising that he was from the generation that put men on the moon, but as an individual, he couldn't do half the physical tasks his grandfather took for granted. He wondered how modern man would cope in a society that had almost overnight reverted to a more basic lifestyle. If the first episode of Survivors is anything to go by, it's not well. We are told that only a handful have so far survived the crisis point, and pretty soon the living will outnumber the dead. Abby is the first to start to feel feverish, and David heads to the village to speak to the local doctor. We learn very few people survive the fever, so it looks bad for Abby as David returns with some flu medication, because that'll help. Nation plays well with audience expectation here. Peter Bowles was a big star at the time this episode was produced, appearing as the lead or co-lead in many ITV and BBC dramas. He would go on to be an even bigger star after switching primarily to comedy roles, becoming the Irish RM, The Bounder, acting as comedy foil to James Bolam in Only When I Laugh, and to Leo McKern in Rumpole of the Bailey, before achieving his greatest success as Penelope Keith's husband in the inexplicably popular To the Manor Born. Genre-wise, he was in The Prisoner and Space 1999, but curiously, given when he was working, never Doctor Who. His only brush with the Doctor came when he popped up in an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures. It wouldn't have been a surprise to viewers to have Bowles survive and go on to be the lead of the series. Nation, to his credit, doesn't go in that direction. After a fitful night, Abby recovers, whereupon she goes downstairs to find David dead on the couch. It's a really effective and shocking moment for being so underplayed. David showed no symptoms when we last saw him, and to focus on Abby and have her to survive and then pull the rug out from under the audience by killing her husband, was audacious and unexpected. The rest of the characters we see in episode one, only Jenny, played by Lucy Fleming, survives. It's through her doctor boyfriend that we learn as much about the spread of the virus as we do, and it's he who tells her that this is a lot worse than the news reports are letting on. On his warning, Lucy leaves London and is heading out to the country where less people means less chance of contagion. Nation's bleak worldview takes full bloom here when Lucy comes across a group of young men looting the shops. They take a quick shine to Lucy and surround her, clearly intent on raping the poor woman. Fortunately, she escapes and spends the night in a car in which she finds a dead body. Presumably she doesn't leave the dead body in the car while she sleeps there. That would be gross and smelly. When she starts travelling again the next day, Lucy experiences another remarkable parallel to today's events as she happens across a Welshman social distancing. He tells her he's not going near anyone until all this is sorted out. Clever guy. The Welshman remains optimistic though, telling Lucy that when all this is over there'll be well-paid jobs aplenty. He also seems to have plenty of faith that man will find a cure or a vaccination soon. 
Lucy stumbles across another man later and they share his fire. When she awakens, he's dead, clutching a bag which Lucy assumes to be of valuable commodities like tins of food, but when she opens it, it's a bag of worthless five-pound notes. Abby, meanwhile, is distraught and walks through a deserted village, filmed in the picturesque Elmwood Castle in Worcestershire. What follows is one of the best scenes in the episode. As she walks through the eerily deserted streets to a deserted church to cry, she prays that she's not the only one to have survived. It's a touching moment, well performed by Seymour. It's also another moment that is almost spooky in how redolent it is of our current situation, where places normally heaving with people are empty and desolate. Abby then quite reasonably assumes that if she is one of the few to survive, then it's possible her son is also immune. She takes her car off to her son Peter's boarding school. She then finds a lot of dead bodies. But her son's bed is empty. If she survived, then maybe he did too. This is the through line for the show, as Abby will spend all of season one looking for him. The final episode of the series provides some closure to this arc when Abby learns that Peter is indeed alive and well, and she leaves to find him. Sadly, the story is never fully resolved, as Carolyn Seymour left the show after the first season, and Abby was never seen again. At the boarding school, Abby meets the caretaker. He tells her that some of the boys went off after they heard on the caretaker's radio that there had been a state of emergency called, by the government. Being nearly deaf, the caretaker stayed behind, as he didn't feel he'd be much use to them once the batteries in his hearing aid ran out. Of the 300 in the school, only he has survived. It's the caretaker who basically sets up the premise of the show. He tells Abby that there will be a cushion, as there will be tinned goods and such, but over the next few generations, man is going to have to learn all over again. And even books won't be all that useful. After all, you can read from a book how to do something, but having the skills and the raw materials to take something from beginning to end is something else entirely. After all, we all understand how an engine works, but could we build one from scratch? And then, could we refine the petrol to run it? Survivors is some of Nation's bleakest writing, and this is the guy who had the lead in one of his shows be framed as a paedophile by the government. It's quite fascinating in how Nation chooses to tell the story, picking one or two normal people and following their point of view. They're also average people. Normally, the central protagonist in these things are police or doctors or scientists, people who have some basic talent for survival, or at least have the knowledge to help us survive. Abby and Lucy have none of those skills. Everything we learn is second or third hand through other people or small snatches of news reports. We see nothing for ourselves. All of a sudden, something we have no control of has swept through our lives, decimated us despite our superior technology and left tragedy in its wake. Now, granted, Survivors amps up the situation to the extreme, but I have to confess this was supremely uncomfortable viewing in light of recent events. There being no humour in Survivors also made it terribly bleak. Everything was presented as so very matter-of-fact. David died, that was it. There was no hand-wringing, no deathbed wailing. He died, and Abby got on with it. After her pep talk from the caretaker, Abby goes home, has a shower, cuts her hair, and then burns her house to the ground. She turns and leaves, going to find her son. 
I've got to be honest, I found this first episode of Survivors a tough watch at the moment. It's a bleak and unflinching look at a global pandemic that results in humanity being decimated. And, as well done as it is, I was a little uncomfortable with it. Not because it's not good. It's actually very good. It may be one of the best things Nation has written. It's clearly well-researched, well-thought-out, and even incredibly prophetic. It's just not what I need right now. For science fiction, it felt almost too real. Nation only wrote the first three episodes of Survivors, and then the last episode of season one, after a falling out with the producers over the direction of the show. He wrote a novel based on these episodes and gave it a different ending. I haven't read the book, but I will try to track a copy down. The series ran for three years on BBC One, from 1975 to 1977, and clocked up 38 episodes. It wasn't as popular in the public consciousness as Blake Seven or Doctor Who, so it was a surprise when the BBC dusted it off for a reboot in 2008. It ran for 12 episodes across two years, but a planned third season was axed after poor viewing figures for season two. Sadly, this meant the series ended on a never-to-be-resolved cliffhanger. Maybe the BBC should put all of Survivors on iPlayer at the moment and see how it does. Audio drama company Big Finish picked up the rights for Survivors, but interestingly brought back the original cast, not those of the remake. Initially set in between the TV seasons, Big Finish branched out at the end, setting stories after the conclusion of the series and concluding the story. They clocked up another 36 episodes. Nation's novel is also available as an audio book through Big Finish, read by Carolyn Seymour. Based upon this initial episode, Survivors is a forgotten gem of a show. Its serialised nature means characters are allowed to change, develop, die, move on and come back. The series culminates on an optimistic note, largely due to the final season being cut down by one episode due to budgetary considerations. Maybe I'll revisit this when all this is over, and we can look back on it with a more discerning eye. everybody, Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well, things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So. Join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. A Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series beginning in March of 2020. Only at twotruefreaks.com. one email. Come on guys, I've seen your daily routine, you're not busy. It's from Alistair Jakes and it's called Lucky Number 7, so I presume it's a reference to The Doctor. 
Hi, Andrew. I loved your episode on the seventh Doctor's final season, and I'm prepared to admit my bias here. I got into Doctor Who and truly became a fan through the books and the mythology of the series lore on fan websites. Oh, I watched Eccleston and Tennant when they were on TV that was more out of love of TV and sci-fi in general. It was when I read the e-books then available on the BBC website that I fell in love with the show. Nightshade, Human Nature and Lung Barrow. In hindsight, Lung Barrow being one of the first stories I probably paid attention to explains a lot about how I view the series and sci-fi in general. I don't want to spoil it, but it has a reputation and is basically the epitome of the Seventh Doctor as a manipulative and mythic figure. Doctor Who inspired me to take up writing and then to university, where I got a B in an essay on Arthurian mythology. In the Seventh Doctor episode, Battlefield, I smiled at you taking it on faith that the episode is well-researched. I best go before I write an essay in this email, but I will point out that there are definitive similarities, if not outright lifts, between the Seventh and the Eleventh Doctor eras, books included. I joke about my love for Amy Pond, but Matt Smith as the manipulative chess player reborn is why I still hold his era in such high regard. Thank you, Alistair. Uh, people keep saying I should check out the books and the audios, and indeed I will, because uh, I seem to have quite a lot of time on my hands at the moment. Uh, some things I do want to bring to your attention, why we are in um, in a situation where I've got quite a short episode. Uh, I just thought I'd watch Survivors and throw it out, because it looked like fun. Uh, I have slagged off quite a lot of YouTube people over the time. But I have found a really excellent YouTube channel. First up, a YouTuber called Clever Dick Films has been doing reviews and analysis of every single one of the Doctors, as well as some behind-the-scenes titbits and answering of questions. These are excellent videos running anywhere in between 40 minutes to an hour long for each of the Doctors. He's currently up to Christopher Eccleston. Uh, given the amount of research and attention to detail and editing that probably goes into these things, this uh, is a year separated from the last one that he did, which obviously was Paul McGann in the Wilderness Years. So I don't expect the David Tennant one to arrive anytime soon. But if you want to go back and get a potted history of the show without actually having to go back and watch old episodes, I heartily recommend Clever Dick Films on YouTube. So anyway, so that's Clever Dick Films. Also, if you are on Twitter, Emily Cook, who works for the Doctor Who magazine, has been organising Twitter rewatches of various episodes of the series, largely focusing on New Who, more than Old Who, because that is more readily available across the world on Netflix, BritBox, whatever, Amazon Prime, and so on and so forth. The episodes that are on Amazon Prime have been made to be free to watch for people to coincide with the rewatch, which is remarkably nice of Amazon. So far, they have done The Day of the Doctor, the Vincent and the Doctor, and Rose, all to coincide with certain anniversaries. I think Day of the Doctor was, I don't know, eight years since it had heard, and Rose was celebrating 15 years since it had heard, and Vincent and the Doctor we did on the day of Vincent van Gogh's birthday or something. All of them, Emily has roped in production personnel and actors to tweet along with the show. Um, she has even managed to get Matt Smith to come on Twitter just to tweet along with his episodes. And he's not on Matt, and Matt Smith's not on Twitter. So that's quite good. Karen Gillan's on. She's always amusing. Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis have both offered behind the scenes tidbits. 
as has Richard Curtis, the writer of Vincent and the Doctor. The next one, which will go out on April 11th, which may or may not before this episode drops, is going to be The Doctor's Wife, uh, which Neil Gaiman will be tweeting along with. They're all a lot of fun. Obviously, I understand if you're if you're in other parts of the world, it's difficult to do it. But the very idea that we're all sat at home watching exactly the same episode at exactly the same time is somewhat comforting in times like this and you know we've been playing along with it and it's been a lot of fun to revisit those episodes with the creative types uh people like davis and moffat have also uh, written new stories um one of which was narrated by caitlin blackwood who played young amy pond and is on youtube and is simply adorable so there are a couple of ways that you can while away your time while you're uh, stuck at home working um and doing whatever you can really so i hope this episode wasn't too bleak it didn't start out as being bleak but it ended up being about survivors which ended up being bleak a lot of bleakness in the world at the minute but there's a lot of joy as well there's a lot of happiness there's a lot of sharing if you are trapped at home um remember we're out here we are available you can talk to me if you want to, you don't have to. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and private message. And you can email the show and I'll read your thoughts back. Um, but take care. Be safe. Stay at home if you can. Take care. It will all get better. It will all be okay. And uh, I'll be back real soon. Oh, you can email heykidscomicsofvirdiumedia.com if you wish. See you later. Bye-bye. Elmley Castle in Worcestershire. In Worcestershire. Worcestershire. In Worcestershire. In Worcestershire. In Elmley Castle in Worcestershire.